Hey everybody, welcome back to the Retro Futurist Culture Podcast. Today, would you so kindly join us as we're going to talk about the world of Bioshock and the city underwater with Rapture. I am joined by some very special friends from the adultgamer.com. I've got my buddies Anthem and Fen. How are you guys doing today? Doing good. Uh, Fantastic. Yeah, maybe stayed up a little bit too late playing Wonderlands last night, but other than that, doing all right. Yeah, I uh, after you know I quit Wonderlands with you guys, and I jumped over and did some uh, zombies. And Wayne joined me for zombies, and he had never done zombies at least recently. And he was like, "What the hell is going on?" <laughs> it was pretty funny. It was a good time. Finn, what did you did you get any gaming in this weekend? I haven't seen you online too much this weekend. Ah, uh, you know, I'm back to work, uh, teacher life, so I've been a little tired yeah. in the evenings. Um, Just zapped. I yeah. figured. Yeah, I, I got some Rumbleverse in uh, with our buddy Warlock, and you know, trying that out, and we had some fun laughs with it last night. So, but cool. That's just been family time and and trying to get my sleep on. But I'm excited to talk about this topic. This get my sleep on. Yeah. So uh, we're here to talk about Bioshock. The it's like, would you call this? I would call this a groundbreaking first person, um, not even a shooter, first person adventure, first person experience. Yeah. Story. I don't know. Um, Because it's not a linear shooter. It's not a corridor shooter. There's elements of role playing, there's elements of puzzle solving, there's elements of morals. Like, um, it's just, it, it hits a lot of things. Let's go into like, what is, what is your first, uh, Anthem, we'll start with you. What is your first memory or initial thoughts of Bioshock? How did you come across it? Or what can you tell me about your first experiences? I remember like when the game first came out and everybody was raving about it, how good it was. And I don't even, I don't know what I my thought process was at the time, but I, I like looked at it and somehow I made like a snap decision that it wasn't for me. And I, I honestly don't remember what I thought the game was, but I didn't realize it was like first person, first person horror. It like, I mean, it's such such, like, we just talked about such a blend of so many things. I don't know what I thought it was, but I was like, that's not for me. And I just started ignoring it and saying like, nah, Nah, I don't like that game for like two or three years. And like anytime anybody brought it up, I was just like, no, I, I'm, I'm okay. And I don't know why I uh, made that decision, but I think I was like trading in a game at GameStop or like, or like getting some, or I saw it on sale or something. Cause like back, back in those days, I would like, I don't know. People gave the GameStop trade-ins a lot of crap, but I didn't. I didn't have like a lot of money myself. So uh, to get games, I would usually like have to trade in one and maybe pay like five, five or six bucks and get a new game. Um, and at some point, I just got Bioshock, and I was like, "Holy crap! Like this is amazing!" And uh, and then I got Bioshock 2 because it was out at that point, and I played. I basically played the first one, and then the second one in Minerva's Den, and then I like jumped into the multiplayer, and I played like so much the multiplayer because it was, I mean, it was a really good multiplayer. 
Yeah. Uh, will you, only because I never, I didn't get to experience these games at launch. We'll get to my part of the story, but will you expand on that multiplayer? Because I feel like I missed out on something cool because you're like yeah. the third person that told me how fun that multiplayer was. Well, it's crazy because like all the reviews at the time said it was terrible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which I guess happens a lot. You it know? definitely got banned. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> and, but it was like um, it was almost like I don't know, like a co- combination of like Call of Duty, but with like Overwatch powers instead of like perks and stuff. Because like obviously, like the plasmids and the tonics. So you ha- there's like you I made loadouts in that, right? Could right. you make like Okay. Yeah, you made loadouts, and there was only, I think there was only, like, probably eight guns in the whole game, or something like that, and probably, like, a similar amount of plasmids, um, and then you had, like, the tonics, which were your passives, and you, you got a couple of those, um, and the maps were very, like, Halo-esque, very vertical, um, with, uh, and, like, fast-paced, and the kill time was definitely, like, somewhere in between Halo and Call of Duty, Um, but with the powers, uh, you know, uh, the plasmids just like change things so much. Like with telekinesis, you could intercept people's bullets. You could freeze people, you know, shock the water that people were standing in or like set oil puddles and let as traps and light them on fire as people walk by. And there's all these like tunnels and stuff you could go through. There was a, there's, uh, not on every game mode. Um, but there was a big daddy pickup where you could like walk over the suit and become the big daddy and then your health wouldn't recharge, but you were super powerful. Um, and, uh, I'll, I don't know. It was just like, it was such a blast. I mean, I pretty much, I even stopped playing Halo for a little while for that game. Um, that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, trying to think they had the they had this thing where you could uh you got a camera you know like like in the campaign and you could take pictures of people's dead bodies and you would like you would get special perks against that player um until you died uh or i actually i don't don't even know if it was until you died or maybe it was until you got killed by that player um but you could like at, I, I'm pretty sure at like the maximum level, if you killed them like five or six times and took a picture of their body every time, you could <laughs> like see them through walls and stuff. It was it was a little broken. I don't know, but I remember having a ton of fun with it. It was it was a really really good multiplayer. I wish they would have brought it back with the uh, collection because I would love to go back and play that with uh, with you guys. Right? Yeah, that would have been fun. All right, Mister Finn. All right. Give us your initial impressions or memories or what, what drew you to Bioshock? Well, first I got to say, it's funny Anthem mentioned GameStop because, you know, this was the era that this game came out. Yeah. It's like the height of GameStop, right? I mean, and back in the 360 days, yeah. not to cut you off, but back in the 360 games, your games could run off a disc. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I used to do a lot of that. I would, if I beat a single player game and I was like, you know, I'm probably never going to play this again. I would trade it in to get something else. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, so like it was the GameStop era. So I was, of course, a GameStop Pro member. And with that came the Game Informer magazine subscription. So I remember the article that like their preview of it. And I was reading through and I was like, holy crap, this is like perfect, right? This has got alternate, you know, past timeline 
you know, that retro futurist vibe, right? You know, science fiction, all the things going on with it. So I knew right away it was a classic. Like I was like, this is right up my alley. And so I pre-ordered it that day. Uh, I read that article in the magazine and went, picked it up, started playing it. And all of a sudden about, I don't know, the first, you know, 20, 30 minutes of the game, I was like, Oh, this might be a little too much horror for me. I mean, I, I don't mind dabbing in a horror thing every now and then, but I, I don't know. I just wasn't feeling it at the time. And, you know, I'm really glad that I, I persevered through it because, yeah, it has that element. It just, you know, but it didn't become the sole purpose of the game. So I was happy with that. But, yeah, it was a ton of fun. I mean, I knew from the start Bioshock was going to be the game, and and I jumped on board for Bioshock 2, jumped on board for the DLC when I found out that came out. Then, obviously, uh, Bioshock Infinite was a day one as well for me. So I was a big fan of the series from pretty much the get-go of reading that very first article. Yeah, I, I actually... Um, I I was a little young, and I missed a bunch of these, but um, Bioshock Infinite was one of, like... I, I want to say, like, three or four games that I actually, like, waited outside at midnight to get the release for that game. Nice. At, at GameStop. Uh, I, I wasn't able to do that with the... A lot of the Halos, which probably would have been my favorite, but uh, I did do that with the time. with the Halos. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, um, I remember when the game came out. I uh, I had played System Shock one and two on the PC. Um, when I got my uh, original Xbox in two thousand one. Uh, I started to get back into console gaming more. I, I always had consoles, but I was like <clears throat> diehard PC gaming, like something fierce, like I was addicted. I was playing a lot of Counter-Strike and Half-Life 1 and 2 and all kinds of other stuff. And um, so I get an Xbox, and when Xbox Live came out, that really kind of pulled me away from the PC to the point where I just stopped gaming on PC probably by like 2004, 2005. So I... You know, when my buddy moved to Japan, our our friend uh, Game Agent ET, he had picked up an Xbox 360 on launch. I did not, but he moved to Japan like six months later, and he sold me his Xbox 360 pretty uh, at a pretty good deal with two arcade fighting sticks. So I, I grabbed that from him and was on the 360, and Gears of War came out, and that sucked me in something fierce. And I remember when Bioshock came out, I was like, oh, that that looks cool. But I couldn't like justify buying it because I was so addicted to Gears of War and Halo Three that like I just I knew I wasn't gonna play it. It was just gonna sit. I literally didn't play any single player games for like years because I had such a fierce multiplayer addiction. Um, and I don't remember which one of you, Fen, if it was you or Warlock. I don't remember how it happened. We started talking about games maybe on the tag cast or in the tag Discord. And Bioshock and I and uh, I had seen the remaster go on sale a couple times on the Xbox store, and it was on sale again for the whole trilogy for under ten dollars. And I was like, "Well, hell, for three dollars and thirty three cents, even if only one of these games are good, this is a killer deal." Well, I was wrong. All three of them were great. Um, <laughs> uh, that was definitely like you said, like right up my alley with the whole retro futurist thing, like the 
strange alternate history 60s timeline that the game starts in and the really kind of neo-noir classical pushed forward story with the pure capitalism of Andrew Ryan building the city of Rapture. Like from the beginning, I was just sucked in. And then the weird, like messed up way that city was underwater, how everybody kind of lost their mind. Um, and it, and it was horror a little bit, which I like, cause I like the resident evil game. So I was like, Oh, this is, this is like right up my alley. And, uh, I really enjoyed it. So thank you to whoever's listening that also pushed me to play it because, uh, I don't regret it for a minute. And in fact, I've, I definitely want to replay all three of them again here soon. But that being said, so uh, let's get into the story and plot of Bioshock. Super huge spoilers. Anybody is listening to this <laughs> podcast, we are going to go spoiler crazy. The moratorium for spoilers is long over. This game has been out for 15 plus years. So if we spoil anything and you're mad at us, it's your own fault. Uh that is your PSA for spoilers on all things Bioshock. Anyway, all right. So Bioshock 1 comes out in 2007. Um, it was developed by 2K Boston at the time, Irrational Games. Um, was the des- Ken Levine was the uh, games designer. He'd also worked on System Shock 2. He is a phenomenal game designer. He's probably a little bit more on the uh, artistic side then that's why the amount of games he's made are so slow but when you play them you understand why they're so good um the setting is very interesting i love how the game starts you um start as some unknown guy on a plane and all of a sudden you're basically hijacking this plane and it crashes in the water and we discover the you swim out from the plane wreckage and you find this little uh, lighthouse access point that leads you to the underwater city of Rapture. Um, The time period is 1960 and it's built by a business man named Andrew Ryan who wanted to create a utopia of pure capitalism. Like just, you know, you, you strap up your own boots and you make yourself what you can and, you know, you're not, it's the complete opposite of communism, which was kind of a popular theme um, in the fifties and sixties. So, um, and they discover in rapture, they discover Adam, a genetic material, which can give people superhuman powers. And this causes like a crazy civil war in the city because of course people go power hungry. And, um, in order to try and control this, they uh, have these little girls called little sisters that can um, harvest the atom from people that die and reuse it. And then they have protectors named Big Daddies who look like these giant hulking diver suit guys with drill hands. Uh, just from that, like... How quickly were you guys just totally like, what the hell is going on in this game? Because I know that's what I was saying about 20 minutes in. <laughs> yeah, the I remember the first time coming across the little sister and the big daddies. I mean, because you meet them and they're not hostile. Like, it's the first thing you come across the whole game that is non-hostile. And then they're like, you're going to need the... Adam, the genetic material from these little sisters to make it through this game. And you're like, 
I don't really want to fight that big, you know, right diver suit aquanaut guy, right? Like, I don't want to do that. I mean, he's got this big, massive groan that just vibrates the room, you know, massive. That sound is, and that sound is awesome. And it's like a key sound in those first few games. And then you got this like little girl that is just like sitting there and, you know, has this, I don't know how to describe her voice. It's kind of like a, you know, dissonant voice going on. And you're like, man, I, what do I do? Right. She almost sounds like possessed. Yeah. Like somebody else is talking through her vocal cords. You almost feel like a little, like, I don't know, like evil or like, like you're a bad person, like, like touching them and like picking them up. I don't know. Like it's a uncomfortable feeling. Well, yeah. Especially and, if you do the playthrough where you're uh, killing them. <laughs> yeah. Cause you get the choice, right? You get, you yeah. can either, you can harvest them to, and kill them and take all the atom from them, or you can uh, save them, save them, and you get a little bit of the atom, and then they can go off like half. Yeah, right. You get like half if you save them, the full amount if you kill them, and that that was that's something that not a lot of games do. Is you have you have your morality at play, and and uh, Atlas, who's a character that you meet early on, that's kind of guiding you through the city. And he's telling you, Oh, Andrew Ryan's evil. You have to stop him. He is like egging you on. He's like, you need to get these powers and, you know, go ahead and kill her. Take all the power. He kind of like almost goads you into it. And, uh, you're definitely, you're definitely in a scenario where you have the angel and, uh, another character, Dr. Tenenbaum on one side, and then you have Atlas and Ryan, you know, the devil on the other side at many times, you know, whereas Atlas is your friend, right? When you first show up, he's the friendly voice trying to get you to help him and his family escape. And it's just wild. But yeah, that the whole, you know, big daddy, little sister dynamic thing. It's still one of my most famous, favorite dynamics in all of gaming. Just, the symbiotic relationship that the two of those have is just, it's always engaging. Like I remember after a few fights with those, I would kind of follow them around for a little bit just to kind of like watch how they engage with each other. And yeah, I mean, it's definitely in a lot of ways, you know, there, there's this, I don't know, you know, generic or stereotyped, you know, father daughter relationship between the two, uh, you know, protector versus protectee type thing. Uh, so it's just, it's awesome to kind of see that and, you know, not to put the cart before the horse, but just getting that experience in Bioshock two in a different way is really awesome. But yeah, no, in the first time in rapture, you know, them and then the splicers, like just how manic and, that, you know, crazy they were through, you know, chasing you down while dragging their weapon behind them, like, you know, causing the sparks to flare off the ground was just like an oh shit moment, right? And the, uh, another thing that, uh, it kind of, it almost is, uh, contrary to the, to the feel of the of the entire setting but it um it enhances the uh the creepiness is is the music 
um, that you're oh, the music's the fucking it's amazing. Like, yeah, it's so iconic to that time period, and mm-hmm. it, it's it's almost like um, it it's not like happy music, but it's 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 like I don't know, it's nostalgic music, and it's music that I think doesn't make you feel you know it's not like horror music um but when it's in that setting and contrasted against all the like really dark and and brooding things that are happening to rapture it it really just makes the entire setting pop and it it pulls you in so well well they make it they have that effect where it sounds like it's coming from an old-time record player you know it just it keeps that vibe going which you know old-time record players you know they had you know have a had a element of kind of like eh, this doesn't quite sound right you know when you're listening to it and this was, yeah it's not the sound isn't perfectly yeah. replicated and there's there's uh there's a, a wave to the how the sound moves up and down and you know it's not equal or even like digital sound is yeah um, the other cool thing, and like one of the things that like I I loved was this idea of these plasmids and how you can get these powers. Like they kind of guide you to getting the first one, and then you get the choice like later on, like which powers you want to use and take and equip. And this is where it kind of comes into a little bit of that like role playing experience because you can kind of design how you want to play. Like if you just want to freaking melt everybody with fire. Right, you can, or if you want to use some of the other powers that are more like non-lethal, like pushing them out of the rooms or pulling them around. Um, yeah, that, or even that using was cool. the power to sneak around. Uh, yeah, go, go yeah, there were so many. Right. Yeah. Like, I think when I when I play it again, I'm going to try not to do the same build I did the first time. Um, I will say gameplay wise though, uh I love all three games, but gameplay wise the first game's a little rough around the edges in some of that department. Like the movement's a little clunkier. Um having to constantly switch back to the melee wrench that you need to use a lot because there's not a lot of ammo for the weapons. Yeah. You know, is a lot clunkier than it than in the second and third outings of this series but overall the the atmosphere the immersion the setting the music like you were talking about both the soundtrack score and the use of period piece like 40s 50s and early 60s kind of soul um soul and uh big band kind of stuff that they threw in there yeah and the oh my god like one of the things i love is like the commercials for the plasmids being like those 50s jingles and it if you haven't played bioshock but you've played fallout like three Mm -hmm. some of that like that hit me in those fallout vibes i was like oh this is very much kind of like fallout in that way um it does i really really like that i feel um i don't know i i don't want i don't want to like uh like crap on fallout because i love fallout and i love the way that they do it but it it feels more like real in bioshock i don't know like Shoot, i, I, I would prefer i would it. agree like, with that yeah i, I would agree with that it definitely seems more built and purposefully into the world of yeah. 
Bioshock. Yeah. Well, they recognize um, that these tonic or these plasmids are tools of death in the little commercials. Like, it's not like <laughs> we made this fire thing to help you roast a marshmallow. No, we want you to incinerate your enemies, your enemies. You know, it, it's, it's wild in that sense that it, you know, and it goes to a theme that, you know, I know we'll talk about a little later on, but it's just like this whole thing of like, you know, they were very much finger on the nose. Like we know what we're doing here. So. Yeah. With, uh, with like using like with capitalism values you're talking about. And, uh, um, I don't know. Sh- showing people the, uh, the most. Oh my God. I just totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> Is it because you forgot to put a quarter in the train so you could keep going? Because <laughs> you have to put quarters in the bathroom to use them if you're in Rapture. Yep. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. That's back right. back into the plot. Um, yeah. So you meet Atlas via the radio. He's like, oh, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. And he's got this kind, friendly Irish sort of accent. He's like, oh, I'm going to help you. We're going to stop Andrew Ryan. He sounds, he's trying to sound like, I think they try to make him sound like a friendly Bostonian you know, a little bit. I feel like um, you went more Australian with your accent, but keep going. I, I maybe, maybe my Boston <laughs> is not so good. Um, you know, and you meet like, oh, the uh, those crocodiles. <laughs> They're coming. Oil <laughs> <laughs> oh, them splices. <laughs> yeah. Ruined. So yeah, that's that was the thing that the the most horror like as as creepy as the big daddies and little sisters were. The splicers were freaky as hell because they were like. They're basically the Bioshock version of crackheads. They're ex-plasmid junkies that are so hooked on their junk, they're killing each other to get more of it. And they're just like, they're all mad. Like they, they all need to go in a loony bin and they say weird stuff when you're walking around and they like, some of them just jump you. And then you get the plasmid or the, uh, the ones later that use plasmids to teleport or shoot fire at you. The Houdini splicer. Yeah. Yeah, The Houdini (laughs) splicer. Yeah. Um, so you uh and we talked about you first encounter little sisters and Dr. Tenenbaum says you should spare them. This ties in there's two endings to the game depending on what you do with this. Um you go to try and save Atlas's family. He's telling you to go here to this sub and you get there and then Ryan blows it up and uh, then Atlas has Jack who you're playing fight his way through various areas of raptures underwater city um such as the mad surgical doctor j.s steinman that guy was crazy Mm -hmm. and then the the insane artist musician uh theatrical guy sander cohen that was a cool bit i really liked that yeah um and then we finally reach jack or we reach uh Andrew Ryan's office and Ryan is just casually playing golf and he kind of lays it all out that who you are and uh, that this game has one of the coolest twists actually has two right or three (laughs) twists and uh, this first reveal is pretty pretty crazy Um, and you find out you're actually Andrew Ryan's illegitimate son and you kind of piece that together Later, you find some evidence of that, but um, uh, and you you start to 
learn about a guy named Fontaine who was a kind of crooked businessman that had a war with, yeah, with, with Ryan. And uh, he's the one actually that had Tenenbaum and Chuchong rapidly age you because you are, you go from a child to an adult in like the span of what, two years or something crazy, two, three years. Um, and you can access Rapture system because you have Ryan's genetic code in you and they want to uh, exploit that. And then you were smuggled to the surface with false memories waiting to be called back to Rapture when you were needed. Ryan takes control of Jack's actions by asking, would you kindly, which is something that Atlas kept saying to you while you were playing the game. And at first I was like, Oh look, he's this nice guy. Oh, would you kindly, (laughs) um, that reveal was, yeah. Right. And it's kind of like the Manchurian. It's a little bit, it reminded me of the Manchurian candidate or like the numbers from black ops. It's one of those things where when you realize, Oh shoot, I've been brainwashed this whole time. Um, and you also realize you were responsible for the plane crash, having read a letter on board containing the same phrase. Um, and this part's kind of creepy too. When you're with Ryan, he chooses to die by his own will and compels Jack to beat him with a golf club. And uh, he mutters this phrase that I wrote in the notes. A man, here. A man chooses and a slave obeys. Yeah, while you're beating him, he just keeps saying that. And uh, I thought that was really powerful. Um, what did you guys, before we get further into the second twist of the plot, what did you guys think about that whole bit and meeting, finding out who you were and that aspect of the game? I think the game sat idle for probably about five to ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> It yeah. it blew my mind, and I still maintain it as one of the best twists in a lot of media, but definitely video games. Yeah, oh, no, yeah. I would I would put it in a top ten storytelling period. Yeah, like I did not definitely top see top five gaming. Yeah, yeah, did not see it coming. One and I to pride myself, you know, my wife hates me because I like to predict what comes next, like on a show or something, and I'm usually right. And I like to, you know, try to unravel the mystery early on. And I didn't see this one coming for the life of me, and it was just like, damn. I mean, you knew there was something about Atlas, right? Like, I don't know, you knew there was something about him, but then, but this was like, I mean, I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure about Atlas. But I wasn't sure about anything in the game. Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the um, what the mind controlling phrase terminology. I don't. I don't know what you like uh, words. Would you I kindly? Yeah, that was like, what? Oh, just mind blowing. It. Just, I. Yeah, and it, I just screw my skull back on after that one. It was definitely a trip, and I think that you know Ken Levine like the narrative and creative lead on the game, you know, he had such a big influence because he was a screenwriter for many years, you know, previously to working on video games. I I don't know that. Yeah. I don't think he really, I would, I could be wrong. I don't know if anything really got made or not, but he tried his hand at making movies for a long time before that, before getting into the video game world. So, you know, he obviously had, you know, a lot of, 
talent in creating this like misdirect, you know, red herring the entire time. So just, it was, it was dumbfounding. And then the whole fact that, you know, Andrew Ryan is just sitting there, like let my own son beat me to death, like, or compelling or telling my own son to kill me was just a trip. Like one of the things I look at back now that you kind of see throughout your entire time in rapture is you're surrounded in this like Marvel, right? You're in this amazing place of ingenuity and engineering and, you know, to exist at the bottom of the ocean in a city like this, you know, especially at, in the 1960s is a feat that could not be outdone. Right. But as you're traveling through the city, you're just seeing the city in disrepair. I mean, it's leaking water everywhere. It's falling apart. The, the inhabitants are nuts going crazy. You know, they're fiends. And it, like, I think like Andrew Ryan knew there was nothing left, right? There, there was no saving this world that he created. So, you know, just go ahead and, you know, put me out of my misery at this point. Yeah. So and it was, yeah. Like it's a world that he built himself for like Hop was talking about earlier, like for the values that he cherished most, the, the capitalist, uh, um, what, uh, very Nietzsche philosophy, kind of, uh, philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it, at the time of his death, it's like every, everything about that, uh, belief ha- has fallen apart and he's repeating the phrase over and over again. And everybody in the city, nobody's choosing any, anything. Everybody's giving into their addiction or, you know, um, or like, uh, Jack being controlled by, uh, greater powers and, Mm -hmm. now some of that uh some of that we find out why that happens in the second game which is very Mm -hmm. powerful we'll get to that in a minute but Mm -hmm. um so uh you know we take care we take care of ryan and then atlas reveals himself to be fontaine and that's the second twist and you're like what the fuck and then he tries to sub-zero you (laughs) <laughs> and he gets rid of you and you think you're dead and you wake up and um Dr. Tenenbaum has decided to save you cuz she thinks you can probably help her save the little sisters um so she helps you kind of like get back on your feet a little bit cuz you've like sunk all the way back to the bottom of rapture and have no no uh help um, and she gets rid of the uh, mental conditioning that Fontaine had put on you, so the would you kindly doesn't work anymore. And then uh, the word that would have stopped your heart, which was really creepy. Uh, <laughs> and so then we go after Fontaine, and then he turns himself into a giant blue skin humanoid creature injecting himself with a super amount of atom and i thought that was a very cool like because you know one of the biggest influences of the philosophy of the game was the work of ayn rand and atlas shrugged and so then he basically turns into a giant version of the atlas like the that's in the rockefeller plaza in new york um and you have to fight him and depending on what you did with the little sisters um they help you um draining Adam from his body and then eventually you kill him and then we get two endings 
from the game. If you rescue all the little sisters, you go off to adopt them and live out the rest of your life in this happy ending. Um, and that's considered sort of, depending on, on the different timelines, that's the canon ending that links to one of the DLCs from Bioshock Infinite. Um, but if you harvest the little sisters, a sub comes and you basically like take over Rapture and become the bad guy, basically. And there's like um, two versions of even that ending. One's a little bit yeah. more calmer, and then the other one, you know, you're more, you're much right, more. Right, the more... Yeah, the more little sisters you you harvest, the crazier that ending gets. I don't remember what the amount of numbers are, but yeah. I think it's more than one. Um, if you harvest more than one, okay. Tenenbaum's a lot more angry yeah. when she's talking. That fight, too. Let's talk about the ending. The ending, uh, you know, we get betrayed again, which is the second twist. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and you also, oh, yeah, you also, like, basically have to turn yourself into a big daddy which was kind of neat, but in that first game felt kind of clunky. You know, you got to search for all these big daddy parts and you have to wear kind of a big daddy suit so that you can uh, help all the little sisters and fight um, Fontaine. Uh, So what did you guys think about that twist there that Atlas himself really was Fontaine and crooked? And I mean, like uh, Anthem, you were saying you were pretty sure he was, crooked from the beginning yeah maybe not from the very beginning but i don't know it's just like a it's a common story trope right like when people are being too helpful like Uh, they they got something right so uh yeah i mean that i don't remember uh i remember liking the twist but uh i don't i don't remember uh really like uh having super strong I, I, I honestly, I think I was in, I was still in like shell shock from, uh, yeah, cause that, right. That other twist happens really fast mm-hmm. too. So you're like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, the whole Fontaine twist was not as shocking as the Andrew Ryan, you know, would you kindly piece? It was just the fact that, once you realize the would you kindly was going on, it was like, all right, Atlas is evil. And, you know, and when they said he's really Fontaine after he faked his death and many years before, it's like, okay, that makes sense. Like it, it connected the dots there. Uh, and I did like the whole, like Fontaine trying to murder you and saying, you know, thank you for, you know, being my pawn and all this. Now I'm just going to be, the most badass dude in Rapture. And so I, I really thought that was kind of a cool, like, you know, transition to the, you know, final act of the game. I will say though, I still, to this day, I love Bioshock. I love it immensely, but the final boss fight in that game, just the mechanics of it annoyed the hell out of me. Um, yeah, I'm with you. So it was pretty, uh, yeah, I, I just felt like it was, too cheap uh in the the way it played out so i was not a fan of it but i i I mean the visuals of it was awesome but the the way the mechanics of it just was not a fan of it but and it just kind of it kind of spoiled a little bit of the game for me at the end in terms of gameplay but not necessarily storytelling 
Yeah, I think I think the great part actually about the the Frank Fontaine reveal was uh, not so much at the time, but replaying the game again and like knowing that like all this stuff about Fontaine and like hearing Atlas in your ear, it's all the same person. Mm. And like when you go back and go through it again, it's like whoa! It you know the games that games and, and even you know stories from in all mediums, movies, books, whatever when when they have such different uh, interpretate, not maybe not interpretations, but you know, when they are so different, the next time, the second, the third, the fourth time you go through it and you learn more and more about the story. I mean, those are really great. We're just great writing. So that, uh, that was the best part about the reveal for me, I think. Nice. All right, guys, let's take a quick break so we can check out what's going on with the Ruminations Radio Network, see what other podcasts are coming up and what's going on, and we'll be right back. You've been listening to another fine, fine podcast on the Rumination Radio Network. This is Game Agent E.T. from Oh God, It Hurts! And we hope you keep on listening to our fine, fine podcast here on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Retro Futurist Culture Podcast, part of Ruminations Radio Network. We're here talking about the Bioshock series, specifically the games that take place in Rapture, Bioshock 1 and 2. I'm joined by Anthem and Fenrir from theadultgamer.com. And we just finished talking about the ending of Bioshock 1. And now we're going to get into Bioshock 2. All right, gentlemen. Bioshock 2. Electric Boogaloo. That's not the real <laughs> subtitle, but I, I like to say it. <laughs> Electric Plasmid Boogaloo. Electric Plasmids. Uh, so, um, it was interesting because, you know, the, I, like I said, I've recently like within what, six months I played through all the past six months, I played through all three of these games on that remaster. I basically literally the day I finished Bioshock one, I started two. <laughs> I, I, I finished one you that you got to experience started two recently. <laughs> yeah. And I think I might've waited a whole day between two and infinite maybe, but, um, so the one thing that I, I will say about 2 right away is that um, the control and the movement and the gameplay mechanics were a lot smoother. Like that part felt amazing compared to the first game. And it's not a slide on the first game. It's just it's crazy to see like they really found um, a better movement system i still don't like the preset controls all that much but i can get used to them um but overall the gameplay was smoother how you could just switch to a melee weapon like instantly and not have to like manually swap it out like you did in the first game um what were your guys' first impressions of bioshock 2 well it definitely starts off with a bang (laughs) you know that's right you know you're you play as a big daddy in this game and it's it's definitely, you know, you're starting out, you're just kind of walking around and all of a sudden, you know, boom, you're shot in the head by the, you know, antagonist of the game and Sophia lamb. And it's just, you know, 
the first game starts with a plane crash. This one starts with you getting shot in the head, right? So where, where do you go from there? And I thought that was just a wild trip. You know, I wish we kind of would have seen a little bit more of like, you know, them removing the helmet of the big daddy, but yeah, it's definitely cool. It was, you know, it was familiar ground from the first game and just back into it, ready to go. So miss Mr. Anthem. I like that they, uh, yeah, but I mean, the beginning's great. Like getting shot in the head. That's like, I mean, that's so cool. And then (laughs) (laughs) please don't do that to me. If anybody is, uh, NSA, I know you're listening. Uh, (laughs) I'm not making any requests, but, uh, just, just in a digital setting. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, the, uh, the plane crash in the first game was sweet and I'm glad they didn't go back to like an outsider going into rapture. They went with like some already on the inside, um, with the madness of rapture, you know, in full swing. Um, and then, yeah, being a big, big daddy and feeling the, like you, you can feel the heaviness of the, or the weight of the character. Mm -hmm. So it was just, it was so good to be back in rapture, you know, uh, I think I think I actually traded in the first game for the second game at GameStop so I could play it. Um, so I had like a, I think I had like a week uh, in between going or something. Ah, so you, and, I mean, uh, you kind of jumped right in. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was all right. Nice so little, but yeah. Go ahead. We'll get into the plot. So as Anthem or as uh, Fenrir was talking about, Bioshock 2 we start on New Year's Eve 1958. So actually, this is like a flashback. It's two years before the beginning of the first game. And Subject Delta, that's you, a big daddy, is patrolling Rapture with little sister Eleanor. And I got to wonder if Queens of the Stone Age made that song about this. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Sophia Lamb. Eleanor's mother separates the pair and forces Delta to kill himself. And then as Delta, you awaken in 1968, resurrected by a little sister under the direction of Eleanor. I really love how the game started. I was like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, Delta is informed by Bridget Tenenbaum. Dun, dun, dun. She's still down there, the custodian of the rehabilitated little sisters, that because he has such a strong uh, you have such a strong physiological bond with Eleanor. You will soon die unless you find her helped by Tenenbaum's ally, Augustus Sinclair Delta makes his way to Eleanor who is trapped in Sophia Lamb's stronghold traveling through the city. Delta encounters members of Lamb's rapture family and can choose whether to kill or spare them. We got that morality back in place along with the little sisters too. Delta learns Lamb plans to use Adam to transfer the minds and memories of all of Rapture's inhabitants into Eleanor to create a selfless leader. Lamb sends Splicers and Big Sisters to help stop Delta. Um, Before we go too much further, one of the things I found fascinating with the second game is now we've flipped the coin philosophically-wise. We've gone from kind of a very self- driven and power uh, motivated kind of philosophy into a more of a what's better for the community, no matter the cost. Uh, almost, almost like communist, maybe a little bit different uh, socialist kind of 
uh, philosophy than Sophia Lamb was, we find out was originally brought in by Andrew Ryan to be the psychologist to try and help with what was going on in Rapture. Obviously, that didn't work out too well. That's uh, interesting. I never thought about it like that. That's uh, that's that's a really good point. That's well, funny. We went from like individualistic, right, achievement to cult brainwashing. Yes. Yeah. It, to me, it was yeah. <laughs> to me, it was like going from ah, yeah, like proactive, like I want to get out, to reactive. But it's really, I guess, you're reactive in both, but. I don't know. That's just the way I thought of it at the time. Yeah. So as Delta, you arrive at the containment chamber where Eleanor is held, but Lamb captures Delta and severs the bond to Eleanor by temporarily stopping Eleanor's heart. Eleanor survives while Delta begins to weaken as the bond cannot be reestablished. Eleanor transforms herself into a big sister, which uh, are these cool bosses that you fight in Bioshock 2. I really liked the big sister fights in the game. That was something different. It kind of reminded me of uh, Resident Evil 2 and 3 where you had to fight the nemesis. So I thought that was cool. Uh, Together they head for an escape pod that Sinclair prepared to escape the city. The two find that Lamb has converted Sinclair into a big daddy who was helping you (laughs) and you were forced to kill him. I, I don't know about you guys. I felt really bad about that. Cause that guy was really cool. I was like, damn it. I got And there's no way to like rescue him or anything. Um, Eleanor and Delta make it to the escape pod, but Delta is mortally wounded by a trap set by Eleanor lamb. And uh, again, this game has different endings. So depending on how you interact with the little sisters and the fates of Rapture's family members, we get a different ending. Um, I know on my playthrough on this game, I basically tried to take the high road and I just saved everybody. I was like, whatever, yeah, <laughs> let's save you all and we will get out of here. Um, so I got the number one gold star ending on my first playthrough. We'll see what I do on the second playthrough. Um, what did you guys do on your playthrough of Bioshock 2? I went with my gut and, you know, save the people that were worth saving and kill the people who were just terrible humans i'm that was my first instinct (laughs) oh sorry go Uh, ahead anthem no 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 i was just gonna say i'm pretty sure i killed everyone but i really i mean the first woman yeah the first woman i genuinely felt bad for her the singer and uh i saved her and after i saved her i was like you know what i'll just save the rest of them they're probably all just like messed up i think i also (laughs) felt bad for her and for some reason i still didn't help her um yeah, I saved her. She, and after that, I was like, well, if I'm going to kill her, I'm going to kill everyone. I feel like she wasn't the root. Like, she was somebody that genuinely meant well, and the position she was in, you know, she didn't, you know, she didn't have a choice. I mean, you always have a choice, but she didn't really have a choice on where she could go from there. And the rest, though, were just scum. They were just bad people. So, you know, it's, oh, I can't remember the guy's name. Um, the guy that is the one that turned Eleanor into a little sister. Um, you know, when you have to rescue the little sisters and when you get the atom, you like relive the memories of the people. Yeah. And you see like how bad he really was. I was like, nah, dude, you ain't coming out of this train station. So, 
I'm going to smack <laughs> you with my big old drill. Just let you have it. But the one thing that like, you know, we talked about early in, with the first game was just seeing that bond with the big daddies and the little sisters. Like it was just awesome being the big daddy this time. Mm-hmm. And, and you had more, more weapon choices too. Yeah. But you also, play with. you also got to, you know, when you found the little sisters, you got to adopt them, carry them and yeah. carry them around and, and do the harvesting with them. And, and then you had to protect them while they were harvesting. So you got to feel that vibe and of what the big daddies really were meant to be in that world. And that was just a yeah. cool moment for me in that game. That was, um, it's interesting. Cause you know, I, some people talk about that. They didn't, care for the like what they call escort missions in that game i didn't feel like it was an escort mission like say something like uh dragon's dogma has a couple escort missions where they're just annoying as hell because the npcs constantly just run off and get killed and then you got then you fail it and you've got to restart it and you're like god damn it um i really didn't feel that way with the ones in bioshock 2 i really kind of like you said i felt like oh this is like i'm saving this little sister and we're going to help her and I'm going to free her. And um, I almost felt just morally obligated in the second game. I think they set you up more in the second game to be a hero. Yes, very much. <laughs> uh, Good way to put it. Yeah. Then in the first game, the first game, because I think Atlas is the first one you really talk to. And he's obviously Fontaine, um, you know, you find out later he he's really pushing you to kill everybody. But in the second game, it's a little bit more of the high road. Let's be a hero and save stuff. Um, at least and that's how a I nice feel. like little narrative connection uh, where like your heart is tied to Eleanor or something. Like basically, you die without her, which uh, in the gameplay means nothing. But you know, narratively, it it gave you an extra. Um, Motivation, little connection, yeah, yeah, motivation to the uh, to the little sisters, and the, the one of the things I also thought was just unique was the fact that you just got to experience, like I said, I mean, you got to experience it in the way of from the big daddy's eyes. You know, you didn't have to go through, you know, Sophia Lamb from the start was just the bad guy. You knew she was bad because she made you shoot yourself in the head. So you didn't have to go through this. Like my motivation is different. I'm trying to make sure I'm going, doing everything in the opposite direction to prevent Sophia Lamb from getting what she wants. Whereas early on, you thought Andrew Ryan was a bad guy. Well, he may have been, but he wasn't really the bad guy. Ultimately it was really Fontaine and, or Atlas or whoever you want to call him. So it it was just you a different storytelling element and you know i really felt like the entire time we were playing sinclair was going to be this big twist thing me too because i really thought he was going to end up being a bad guy yeah. i was like this guy's too nice i was like he can't be that friendly well and he did the same thing as atlas like you really want to harvest them and he was pushing the harvesting every time you came to these little sisters. So I really feel like he would become this bad guy. And when you mention at the end, when he gets captured by lamb and turned into a big daddy and you have to fight Dude, him, it's like, it was just like, I was so sad. Like, I mean, I guess that's a twist, but like, it was just like, man, 
That sucks. I was really kind of, I had you pegged all wrong that you were going to be this evil dude in the very end. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good way to twist the uh, expectations from the first game to the second game. Smart. And then depending on your um, ending, right? Depending on what you do, the depend that determines the fate of of Delta. Um, if you harvest the little sisters and kill the Rapture family, Eleanor will extract your Adam, and she becomes like evil. But if you save the little sisters, the player can choose to let Eleanor absorb his Adam or stop her, so she can forge her own path in life. And I thought that was really cool. Um, after I beat the game, I went on YouTube to watch the other endings just to see um, what they were. And uh, I thought that was really cool. And I overall, like I, I had seen a lot of like, oh, Bioshock 2 is the worst game in the series. <laughs> There's a lot of flipping and back and forth between. Universally, it seems like Bioshock 1 is loved. And then 2 and Infinite kind of flip back and forth between people as the best or the worst in the series, depending on what day it is. Um, I really liked Bioshock 2. And like I said, if you listen to all the audio logs, if you really want to go deep into the story, the second game kind of explains how Rapture fell. And it talks about, like, you get all that backstory that they didn't explain to you in the first game. So it was, for me, really cool, especially after just playing the first one, to play the second one and go, oh, that's so crazy. (laughs) Yeah, they do a great job of world building through environments and audio logs, I guess, and also like building on their own uh, worlds in future games. Like, um, you know, yeah, it's just it's just like what you were saying. It's so good. Yeah, and then they had the audacity; these motherfuckers that made Bioshock Two, they had the audacity to release a DLC. It is almost better than the game itself. Let's talk almost. about Minerva's that's Den. A, uh, yeah, I, yeah. Let's that, let's that's talk a bold about statement. Me. I'm pretty sure. It, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is better than Bioshock yeah, Two. But well, you know, <laughs> I won't go into absolutes because I enjoyed both so much. I would I would put them neck and neck. But yes, so they released they released a few DLCs, but they were mostly multiplayer uh, featured, except for one story DLC. Bioshock 2, Minerva's Den, universally loved by most people that I went and did research on uh, between Reddit and various other internet forums. Uh, Minerva's Den, we are now subject Sigma, and we must travel through Minerva's Den, the technological hub of the underwater city of Rapture. So we're learning about another thing that Rapture had this, and I fucking love this connection here. Rapture had this computer system that helped control like the doors and the access panels and the pressure system. And, you know, cause you have a city underwater. Um, I really, really, really loved that. It was tied directly into, um, Oh my God, I'm having a anthem sized brain fart. Uh, who is the computer guy? Turing. Turing, Alan Turing. Yeah. It was tied directly into Alan Turing and the Turing project and breaking the Nazi code. So uh, gameplay is similar to Bioshock 2, um, but we've got new enemies and weapons. Well, So after becoming disillusioned with his role in World War II and the loss of his wife, Pearl, in the Blitz, Porter, who is a computer programmer at work at Turing, traveled to Rapture to pursue his dreams of creating AI. 
While initially working together, Porter and Wall each wanted to use the Thinker, which was the AI for their own ends. Porter attempted to recreate Pearl by emulating her personality into the computer. While Wall believed he could program the computer to predict the future, Wall betrays Porter to rapture secret police to keep the Thinker for himself. Minerva's den has been cut off from the rest of Rapture and its scientists who have taken to splicing and they attack Sigma. So um, that's how it starts. You're playing the bee daddy named Sigma and the environment becomes increasingly threatening due to Thinker's sophisticated defense systems and interference from Wall and his private army of splicers. So we got the splicers again. They never really get old. They're pretty fun. Um, and it's fun killing splicers. Sigma arrives at the Thinker's core and Wall sets uh, more big daddies and ultimately himself against you. Sampling Sigma's DNA to print out its schematics, the Thinker reveals Sigma's true identity. And this is this had such a cool twist. I was like, son of a bitch. Um, you realize that the big daddy that you're playing is Porter, who was turned into a big daddy after being handed over to Rapture's authorities. Porter's instructions throughout the game actually came from the Thinker, which is imitating the voice of one of its creators. The final sequence of this game contains no combat where you walk through Porter's living quarters where he obsessed over digitally recreating his wife. And Sigma and Dr. Tenenbaum return to the surface in a bath sphere. Tenenbaum is able to undo Sigma's programming and restore Porter's original human body. Porter then visits his wife, grave and leaves a letter in which he apologizes for trying to bring her back using the thinker and says he's decided to let her go man that that ending was intense mm -hmm. that yeah. whole thing once you figure out that you were porter i was like oh my god <laughs> uh that was definitely an amazing story it's much shorter than bioshock one or bioshock two it was very creative and very well crafted and i really liked the newer uh weapons they had in there like that laser beam <laughs> you oh, could yeah. get that cool laser yeah. beam yeah that was really fun what uh what are your thoughts on minerva's den and fen let's go with you first because you you said minerva's den is the best well, of all time. I felt like Bioshock 2, <laughs> well, it's not the best Bioshock. I think it was better than Bioshock 2. Um, but the reason why Bioshock 2, I think, didn't like, hit so well for me was I felt like it got long in the tooth at times. It, it kind of stretched things out a little longer than it needed to be, whereas Minerva's Den was a very concise storytelling experience. It was, you know, I would say like, four-ish hours if you you know yeah it's it's not long at no. all you're right and i would agree with both of those statements so and and it just had it, it didn't have a lot of filler it just was boom you go in here and you do your thing and and you get out it was with some really awesome twists and turns and reveals like the CM Porter reveal that you were actually him the entire time and CM Porter that was talking to you was really the thinker and, you know, the whole thing was just awesome. Uh, and replaying it recently, there was a lot of really cool tidbits that I don't think I really picked up on. And, you know, that just kind of were really awesome callbacks. One of the things that we didn't really talk about with Bioshock's universe and Rapture was Andrew Ryan wanted to build this world that obviously 
left everything in the surface world behind. Like there was nothing to, you know, no music, movie or, you know, movies and art, all that stuff that was up in the surface world stayed there. Everything down here had to been, had to be rapture created. Right. And yeah, but he, he brought all the best or he invited all the best to come down there and do that. Okay. Go on. So the thinker, right. One of the first things you see when you come into Minerva's den is the thinker statue sitting there. And it's like the first real reference to the outside world. And Uh later on you get this like tape, one of the uh, tapes and Andrew Ryan is pretty much like you stole the thinker statue uh, CM Porter. And if it brings people to my doorstep, I have to put them down like the dogs they are. And I will lay the blame at your feet. And I was just like, damn, like that was just like Andrew Ryan, you know, swinging it around. Like he's the biggest in the room. And I was just, but it like just goes to show you like how serious he was about leaving everything behind from the outside world. And yet here we have CM Porter and wall having this thinker, uh, statue inside their, you know, realm. So it was just, it was wild just to kind of come across that again recently. So, but yeah, I think yeah. Minerva's den is one of the best storytelling, um, in the series, but not as good as, uh, the first story, obviously. I, I, uh, I do appreciate it. And I wish like, you know, I think a lot of games suffer from bloat because of player or review expectations. Like everybody's like, Oh, a game campaign has to be this long and do this much. I would rather have an amazingly mind blowing gameplay, world building crafted experience. That's six hours long than a meandering mess that's 20 hours long. I don't know. That's just me. I agree. I would, I would rather have the higher quality, short and sweet, well-told experience than something that starts good and has you like doing a bunch of fetch quests in the middle of the game or monotonous crafting in the middle of the game or any of that shit drives me fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, Arbitrarily extending. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Just padding padding the game out because they don't think it's long enough yeah you know side stories um, that aren't needed you know yeah just stuff like that so that's why i think minerva's den really shined and it had a lot of really cool callbacks to the real world you know they talked about the the enigma machine from world war ii yeah and, you know just all that stuff to kind of really help you have pieces to make you understand that cm porter was like a dude that knew what he was talking about and the, you know, constantly his desire to out outdo Alan Turing, like that stuff was a really cool beat throughout the story. And, you know, we talked about the, at the top of the show, I think where Bioshock hangs its hat the best is it's narrative and world building and just the little nuggets of information you gather. Cause if you, listen to all the tapes in Minerva's den, mm-hmm. you, yeah. you start figuring out, you could put the pieces together that, you know, see importer, you are see importer. If you, you know, pay attention to all the little nuggets. I mean, I didn't catch it, but you know, going back through and hearing it, it's like, Oh yeah, that makes like that 
makes perfect sense as to me being Sam Porter, you know, and that the thinker is the one pretending to be Sam Porter. So it's just, obviously I just recently played through Minerva's Den. So I'm, you know, I have a lot of this information, you know, fresh in my brain, but it, I still think it's out of, if I had to rank, you know, Bioshock one, Bioshock two, Minerva's Den, it would definitely be one Minerva's Den, then two. So that's me. All right. Right on. Anthem, your thoughts, Minerva's Den. Yeah, I mean, uh, Fen pretty much hit everything. Uh, I uh, um, Just to touch on the uh, the whole uh, ranking thing real quick, it, it's, you know, it's, uh, I think Fen feels the same way. I think all of us probably feel the same way. Like, even if uh, Bioshock 2 is, is the worst uh, um, story in, in the franchise, it's still like... Uh, you know, it's like it's what well, it's like Return of the Jedi or something in the original trilogy. Like it's it's probably the weakest of the three, but it's still it's still really good. Uh, maybe you don't ad- agree with that statement. I don't know, but uh, I I think it's I think it's awesome. But uh, yeah, I mean, Fen hit it like pr- pretty much perfect. The uh, the the uh, the setting and the expansion, and then um, the tightness of the story and the clues that they leave uh, all around. And I really, I really liked that, um, you know, Rapture is obviously, (laughs) it's not something that can actually happen, uh, in real life, like just technologically. Um, but the, the idea of it is so awesome. And just to add a, a computer that controls it all, um, and, and keeps things running, uh, was such a, I don't know, it's like such a great piece of world building that was like, it really um helped make it feel even more i guess real is the word i i don't want to repeat myself constantly but uh it 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 reminded me a little bit of that uh that uh story from heinlein uh the the moon is a harsh mistress with mike and uh finding out like i don't know discovering about the uh I guess it's different. I, I'm sorry. I'm kind of rambling. You're, but, you're, uh, you're good, man. Yeah. The uh, just the uh, the personality of a computer and controlling a uh, a city and a place that is not meant for humans to exist was such a uh, such a great uh, great concept for a story. Yeah it it definitely has so much story potential. On a side note. You know, there was supposed to be a movie at Universal that got canceled or expired or whatever. And now the rumor is, or the deal going through, is that Netflix is going to do something with Bioshock. Netflix seems to be hit or miss with their adaptations. They either knock it out of the park like Sandman or Umbrella Academy, or it's a hot mess. So hopefully it's it's of the former, not the latter, because I would like it to be great. Um but overall, nothing can really, and that won't take anything away from these games that are just both amazing, and the DLC for Minerva's Den. And to our listeners, uh, please stay tuned because we are going to do a part two episode where we're going to talk about Bioshock Infinite. So stay tuned for that. Fen Anthem, I want to thank you both for coming on to ramble on about the greatness of Bioshock, about this great world. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, 
I, there, I definitely did a lot more rambling than I intended, but uh, it's a great, great franchise, and I always love to talk about it. Yeah, I can't wait till we come back to talk about Infinite because I know the three of us have have all uh, had some fun with that, and that'll be a really fun discussion. All right, everybody, thank you. You've been listening to the Retro Futures Culture, a production of Ruminations Radio Network. Please subscribe, rate, and review our show at your podcast listening avenue of choice. We'd love to connect with you on our social media. You can find me on Twitter. Handle is at Futurist Retro. Visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as Ruminations of Red Rum, the original Ruminations of the Red Room, Oh God, It Hurts, Cinephile Hissy Fits, and more. Support Ruminations Radio Network at Patreon.com backslash Ruminations Radio. And for all your questions and feedback, drop us a line, RuminationsRadio at gmail.com. Would you so kindly... 